Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Well done and thank you for uncovering Whitehall Sources, your new insider podcast on politics, brought to you in association with The Resident, hotels with excellent rooms in exceptional locations and where thoughtful teams deliver heartfelt hospitality. A bit like number 10, but with The Resident, evening drinks are from Justerinian Brooks, they don't get wheeled up a road to you in a suitcase. Thanks to The Resident, your favourite podcast starts now. choosing to prolong the misery rather than end these strikes. We want to have constructive dialogue with the unions. When it comes to the issue of pay, we have accepted in full the independent recommendations of the pay review bodies. Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. Welcome to 2023. We have made it over the cusp of the new year. Well done, everyone. Uh, Great to have you there. If you are brand new this year, then welcome. Thank you for finding us. Um, It's great to have you along. We've got many, many exciting things in the pipeline for 2023 already. I realise it's only the middle of January, uh, but believe me when I say you will not want to go anywhere. Don't leave us behind. There's lots to come from Whitehall Sources this year. So follow the podcast and subscribe to it. Make sure you do. I will be forever grateful. We all will be, in fact. Uh, Make sure you stick with us um, as we ramp up for 2023. Uh, Our email address is hello at whitehallsources.com. And speaking of emails, a new little addition to the armory of Whitehall Sources, we would really love if you would join our mailing list. Now, I promise that the first email you get, other than the verification one, The first email you get will be with an exciting announcement. That is a promise. I can't tell you when it'll be, but it'll be an. You're not going to get spammed. Is what I'm saying. So to sign up to the mailing list, it is completely free. Go to WhitehallSources.com. That's the website. It's very obvious. Just scroll down and you put in your name, your email address, and then click verify in the email that comes, and you're done. Sign up to the mailing list because exciting things are happening in 2023, and as well as telling you about them here, we can email you as well. Of course, thankfully, mercifully, it's not just me here. Kirsty Buchanan is here. Hello, Kirsty. Hello, Happy New Year. Oh gosh, Happy New Year. Yeah, let's do that. And Frankie Leach is here. Hello, Frankie. Hello, Happy New Year. And happy birthday to you. Oh, thanks. How exciting. <laughs> We're recording on Thursday the 12th of January, so you can all now put it in your calendar. Frankie's birthday. Are you having a lovely day so far? I am, but I'm just a bit conscious that my cat is like Craig, <laughs> as always, behind me. It wouldn't be a birthday without chaos from the cat. It wouldn't. Special mention to Max and happy birthday to Frankie. Um, for your birthday, what strikes are on today? Um, are you getting deliveries? Is Royal Mail still functioning? I think it is just about today. Yeah, I've had deliveries this morning, got some very nice flowers. But in terms of strikes, um, there are no tube strikes on today, which means I can get out and about to the various things I've got planned. Um, But obviously yesterday, 
um, PCS, the civil service union, clearly is a pre-birthday announcement for me, <laughs> announced a massive walkout, which is going to be happening in February. Well, yeah, should we get into strikes then? Because in some ways we're kind of handing the baton to ourselves from our pre-Christmas episodes. Uh, but this week, I think, feels slightly different for strikes because even today, various meetings are taking place in Downing Street uh, to try to work through the strikes. Uh, there are other things to think about in that meetings happened earlier this week as well and led to, well, not very much. Um, so that's something to consider with all of this. But Kirsty, from you, first of all, let's get some analysis on where the strategy is here in the middle of January 2023 compared to where we left it at the end of last year. I think we're at different stages with different strikes. So if we start with the rail strike, for argument's sake, I think we left it about as low as things could get. An offer had been put to the... RMT, which was pay increases over two years of 4%, 4%. But there were accusations at the time from the RMT that at the last minute, the government inserted a clause about driver-only operated trains. And this was a clear red line for Mick Lynch. And yesterday, Mick Lynch and the other union, rail union leaders were in front of the Transport Select Committee. And all three were asked what their chances were of, you know, securing a deal anytime soon. And I think the answers came back zero, zero and none. So it felt like, you know, we were on for yet another sort of month after month after month of gruelling uh, rail strike action. But, 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 there are reports this morning, obviously, that there are talks going on and a deal is going to be put into the RMT today. This is reportedly to be 5%, 4%, so a slight uptick on this. We'll wait to see whether the dreaded DOO is still in there or if it's been watered down or removed completely. And that would then either go to the executive committee and then go to members for a vote with or without an RMT recommendation on it. So us long-suffering commuters can hold, you know, cross our fingers <laughs> and hope. However, mm. I have to say, yeah. though, that the um, ASLEV, so there's the TSSA, um, the TSSA, in essence, they do not have the power, quote-unquote, to scupper the deal. The RMT is the big prize at the moment, but there's also ASLEV, which represent the train drivers. Now, they rejected a deal kind of out of hand, and so I'm a little bit kind of cautious to sort of say, look, it, you know, even if RMT gets over the line, until you get ASLEV over the line, got no drivers, you've got no trains, right? Mm. It's, it's, I think it's fascinating to observe where we've picked up Basically, because I'm I'm trying to work out what's happened in the interim, and 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 what has changed, or is this just the cycle of strikes and negotiations? This is just how it works. That eventually, after a few months and you know a couple of weeks of Christmas and everyone comes back, there's just more willingness to kind of try to progress. It's worth bearing in mind that the strike action was going on for for six months mm. before an offer, an actual offer, was put into the RMT. So the government's role in this is to, to fund the offer, if you like. That is its role, but it is the role of the rail delivery group, which represents all the train operating companies, to negotiate in the room. So we've had this kind of to and fro from the RMT about saying, who's really in charge here? The actual mandate for negotiations is one thing, but the pay deal that was put on the table wasn't put on the table till, I think, December of last year. It's the first offer. Now, that was rejected. You'd expect quite often, you know, for an opening salvo offer to be rejected uh, and then for a return with a, with a slightly better offer. And that's what we've seen here. It feels fairly standard practice to me. Yeah, OK. And, and Frankie, do you agree with that? Do you feel like, by way of strategy... That it's all that it's all just kind of doing the circle, the cycle of of strikes. Um, it has been a long time, as Kirsty highlights. It's been a long time that people have been disrupted and across various sectors, um, areas of the economy, etc. Does it just feel like we've kind of you know we're completing the circle and, and getting to the conclusion? What I would counter is that I think the government have played an interesting game here, which is essentially that they are letting the strikes carry on because part of their negotiating tactic is they want commuters and the public to not be on the side of the unions. And obviously, by their very nature, strikes are disruptive, right? So six months of strikes, you know, it gets on my nerves. I obviously have the thought in the back of my mind that I support the industrial action, so I try you know, not to even have thoughts of like blaming the drivers, but for, you know, the average commuter, they probably would feel that, you know, it's the strikes that are 
causing them so much problem. And I think the government basically is using that to their advantage. They're not creating a you know negotiator where you can make a deal easily. They want the strikes to go on because they want public opinion to turn against the, the rail unions in particular. So I would also wager that actually it's the government that's partially responsible for a lot of this commuter chaos as well as the rail unions because they're striking. Mick Lynch of the RMT in front of the Select Committee this week was trying to make kind of that point in a roundabout way, I suppose, by saying the chaos of the strikes is is actually comparative to the chaos of, of non-strike days because the rail service is, in his view, a bit of a shambles anyway. Which would which would kind of play into the point uh, that the government's trying to make, to be fair, which is that, you know, uh, what has happened has been a permanent shift in pre-pandemic travel patterns. So, in essence, we've seen... Uh, revenues fall by 20% because most people have adapted permanently to new ways of working. So the old school, nine to five, five days a week, commute into town has gone. Leisure travel is increasing, but, you know, day-to-day peak time commuter travel, five days a week, has gone. Mm. That's led to a reduction in overall revenues, which means that actually to fund a pay increase that is fair to rail workers but also fair to the taxpayer, you need some reforms. So, so actually, you know, I, I take the point, but you can, you can flip that kind of both ways if you like. I do think one strategy has notably changed under Rishi Sunak's government as opposed to Boris Johnson's or, or Liz Truss's, which is the tone of this. So mm. we have a Transport Secretary now in Mark Harper who has adopted a much more constructive much more conciliatory tone than we had with Grant Shapps, who was very kind of studs up about the whole thing. And Hugh Merriman, the, the, the rail minister, there's been a much more kind of constructive debate going on and a willingness to engage on this to try and bring this to an end. Look, my, my genuine belief is that this isn't some power play by the government. This is a genuine attempt to try and square a circle of a service that is vitally needed, that rail workers that are hugely uh, valued by society, but against a terrible economic backdrop and a, you know, a permanent decline in revenues from pre-pandemic levels. Well, I'd counter that point just very quickly, which is that when you say that this isn't a power play from the government, granted, it's not just about the rail strikes, but what would you call this new strike legislation if not a power play. Because I'm going to be perfectly frank, I don't think the government cares one iota during strike periods about patient safety or minimum safety levels or any of the kind of stuff that's in that draft legislation. What that draft legislation is, is an attack on the fundamental human right of the right to strike and withdraw your labour. So what is that legislation, if not a calculated attempt to restrict trade union freedom and activity in this country? It's a fair and balanced attempt to ensure that people have the ability to call an ambulance on strike days and guarantee that someone will turn out for them under a life-threatening, life-threatening position. So, look, I mean, this, 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 this minimum service requirements are pretty standard practice in many European countries. We already have them uh, for some blue light services. This is a, an extension of this to other blue light services, and I think it's a. Uh, a fair and reasonable idea to get a minimum service level, uh, which doesn't penalise individuals for the right to strike, but does guarantee that that patients have an expectation that, you know, if they've got a life-threatening condition, that someone will come out and save them. But the ambulance already have that condition, which is that if you have a life or limb-threatening injury, the ambulance has a minimum uh, service level provision when they're striking. And actually, uh, an interview that I listened to yesterday from a striking ambulance worker said that on the strike day, they had better arrival times than when they're not striking to be able to support people who've got life-threatening or limb-threatening injuries and were able to do that quicker. So that legislation already exists for the strikers. They don't want to impact you know, the safety of their patients. But by removing the right to strike for certain workers, you are attacking the fundamental right to strike. Uh, I'm slightly confused by... uh, I don't want to get into the weeds of this too much, but but I understand that there are are different local agreements in terms of of ambulance workers and when they turn out and and at what level they turn out in terms of... But they are localised minimum service levels. And I think what this is an attempt to do is to try and standardise this across the country so you don't end up with a kind of patient postcode, if you like, on strike days. But I've heard different responses from unions on this. It's either, well, the legislation is already there, so what's the point? Or it's a fundamental attack on 
the right to strike and, and people's individual liberties. I, I'm struggling to see how it can be both at the same time. So very quickly, the point is, is that once you start putting legislation in place that restricts trade unions in terms of what they are able to do. So this isn't about trade unions making a decision that they don't want to stop workers from attending to life-threatening or limb-threatening uh, incidents for the ambulance workers. When the government puts that legislation in place onto the trade unions, that is entering the territory of essentially government restrictions on trade union activity. And that, for me, is, is very concerning and problematic. And I think in a democracy as well, you're essentially saying to people uh, that, you know, how is that work? That's kind of like indebted work, isn't it? That you're being forced to work and you don't have the right to remove your labour. For me, it's just very politically concerning. But, I mean, several blue light organisations in place already don't have the, the right to strike. Prison officers don't have the right to strike. Uh, you know, other blue light services in other countries, in, in Italy, in Spain, in France, have minimum service levels. And in other countries like, uh, you know, America and Japan, they have, there is, you know, there is, a, there is an effective bar on, on this. This isn't, this isn't stopping people in the way that we're stopping the police's right to strike at all. This is ensuring a nationwide minimum standard level that is agreed so that depending on where you are doesn't depend what kind of postcode lottery of ambulance service you get turning out. And I just... You know, it is it is standard practice in many European countries. It is supported by the uh, International Labour Organization. I just this this idea that it's a fundamental attack on on human rights. I just I just struggle with it, and I think many patients will too. I think as well, just to sort of broaden the the sort of postcode lottery angle on this. If I if I speak personally, I have been affected not once by any of these strikes at all, not once. And I live in London. I work in London. Um, I've not needed any emergency healthcare, I appreciate. I have been travelling around a bit, but not that much. My commute is relatively easy. Um, you know, getting from A to B, I have options and alternatives. Lucky you! Oh, well, this is the thing. <laughs> but my, <laughs> and I'm not just here to brag. My, <laughs> my, my, my sort of consideration is, I wonder actually how, how close we have felt to the strikes. Look, I'm sure that strikes have had an impact on people because that's the point of them. You know, workers strike to show the impact of what happens when they withdraw their labour and show what a vital functioning service they are, particularly in the public sector. But one thing I would just point out, and this is kind of, I suppose, going back to quickly the point on the legislation about minimum, you know, safety levels and staffing levels. Um, if the government really cared about a minimum safety level for people, say, in the NHS, you know, it wouldn't have, you know, destroyed it in the last few years. And this whole thing about talking about, you know, we need to make sure that a minimum level of care is provided to people. We need to make sure that people who've got life-threatening injuries can get an ambulance in time. That doesn't happen anyway outside of the strikes. And that is why a lot of those public sector workers are striking because they say that with the funding and management that they receive from the government, they're not able to provide the public with a decent service. And I think that if you listen to some of the interviews of people in the public, you know, take my personal example, which is that I get the train on Avanti West Coast to Manchester pretty frequently, I'd say every couple of months. And I can't tell the difference between when they're striking and when they're not. Mm. For instance, next Sunday, I want to go and visit my parents to date, on Thursday the 12th of January, I can't buy a ticket because they haven't even been released by the network yet. That is not a functioning rail service, and I don't think that's down to strikes. Mm. With all of this in mind, then let's let's do a classic. What what advice would you be giving if you were in if you were in Downing Street and you were advising either the PM, the Transport Secretary, the Health Secretary, you know whoever is dealing with these strikes? What is the advice? Is it is it hold out? Is it what's a good deal? Is it do better at winning the PR war, if you like, and actually speaking about this more and more in the media. Um, I don't think there was a round this morning, for example. Should there be? Should somebody be out saying some? I don't know. What is the advice? What is the advice that you would give? Frankie, let's start with you. Oh, it's tricky. I mean, look, for the Labour Party, it has a unique relationship with the trade unions. Now, granted, the RMT doesn't affiliate the Labour Party, so therefore it doesn't have a seat on the Labour Party NEC. Um, but having a good relationship with the RMT around the train strikes is really important. 
So I actually don't know what I would be advising this Labour Party because but I shouldn't think... it be saying something. I think the point is, if I, if, to speak from my own experience of interviewing the, the Labour Party over the last few months and, and members and representatives of it uh, in the shadow cabinet, it's, it's very difficult to understand what what they're for by way of a resolution here. And my sort of, I suppose, my key moment in all of this was speaking to Annalise Dodds. This was before Christmas. And me saying, you know, do you support the nurses who are on strike? And she gave kind of very roundabout answers of, you know, government's broken the NHS, blah de blah all that sort of stuff. And that's fine and that's valid. And I kind of just kept kept going in a very nice way about, do you support the nurses? And eventually it was sort of like, well, Hank, we've been at this for ages and it's clear that you are not going to voice your support for the nurses. And my point then was, if the Labour Party can't support nurses on strike, why should nurses on strike support the Labour Party? No, I absolutely agree. And this is why I say I don't know what I would be able to advise, because for me, the Labour Party politics around industrial disputes and workers' rights at the moment aren't the same as mm. my politics. I think that the fact that a Labour Party minister, or even MP, frankly, isn't able to say, and just to say as well, as we know, you know, a minister or an MP if they're doing a broadcast round, has been briefed, right? So that isn't, I don't think, Annalise Dodds's personal politics, sure. refusing to admit that she doesn't support um, the nurses. I bet if you asked her one-on-one, -on -one, she probably would say yes. That line will have come from Lotto. It will have come from the Labour Party press office. And, you know, that shows a political position. And it would be one that I would find very difficult to advise because, I, you know, I disagree with it in its entirety. Mm. Kirsty, let's come to you on, on the advice, on the strategy. As you kind of observe, what, is, could they be doing things differently? Well, I tell you what, my advice be to the Labour Party exactly exactly what we're seeing, which is to say as little as possible about this because it is a broad uh, a broad church, but you know it's also trying to uh, reposition itself on the centre ground for a looming general election. And the reality of it is, is that actually, you know, Frank is right. You know, the sympathies of you know, probably almost all, if not all, Labour Party members, councillors, and probably the vast majority of the MPs, mm. including all of them on the front bench, is of course with the striking workers. But you know, from a poll point of view, this is this is problematic. So you've caught them in this slightly uh, fence-sitting position, which is uncomfortable for them. So I would just say say as little as possible. And the reality is, and we've heard West Street and the Shadow Health Secretary say this. You know, it it plays to the Conservatives to play up the differences here. But the reality is there isn't much difference in practical terms. If the RCN is asking for inflation plus five, which is at 19%, both the Labour Party and the Conservative Party say that is simply not affordable in the current economic climate, that it would fuel inflation and it would take money away from treatment. I mean, if you look at... This is not a political position, if you like, from that point of view. If you look at what's happened in NHS Wales, which is run by... You know the the Welsh Labour government is you know is a Labour government. It's run the NHS in Wales for decades. There they've been offered four to five percent because that is what is deemed to be economically viable. And Mark Drayford, the Labour Welsh First Minister, has said any more than that takes money away from treatment, takes money away from nurses, takes money away from patients. So those are the kind of balancing acts. So there's not actually in practical terms a lot of difference. But what you are seeing with the Conservative Party is the ability to uh, hold a line that doesn't do them any damage, if you like, and play up the rhetoric and play up the differences with the Labour Party that aren't, in practical terms, necessarily there. So we saw in Prime Minister's question time yesterday, Rishi Sunak say over and over again, and I suspect we're going to hear this line uh, till these strikes are resolved, that the Conservatives are on the side of patients and passengers and Labour is on the side of its union paymasters. I mean, actually, when you look at the, the, the policy differences between them on this strike, that, that's, you know, that's good rhetoric. But the reality is there's a cigarette paper between them. Mm. Really, really interesting. Of course, add your thoughts to our conversation always. You can email hello at whitehallsources.com. We love to get your messages anytime and then we'll consider them on the next episode. That's the way it'll work um, from here on out. So email hello at whitehallsources.com. Perhaps it is that. Do you feel close to the strikes? Have you been affected? Perhaps you've got experience of the disruption that's been caused in any number of ways, whether it's Royal Mail or the nurses or transport, whatever it is, uh, you can be in touch. Hello at whitehallsources.com. And while you're emailing, why not sign up to our mailing list as well? Because lots of things going to be announced on there over the course of the year. 
click onto the website. It is whitehallsources.com. It's very easy. Whitehallsources.com and just pop in your details to join the mailing list. Still to come, Rishi Sunak heads to Scotland. We'll be right back after this. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with The Resident, hotels that are your home away from home in London and Liverpool. Resident hotels provide the perfect base to explore the city. Maybe you stayed in The Resident in Liverpool for the Labour Party conference just a few weeks ago, or you may be looking for a base from which to explore London. You might even be on a political pilgrimage to Whitehall and Downing Street, inspired by this very podcast. Whitehall Sources brings you the inside info on politics. The Resident brings you insider info on your chosen destination. Go to residenthotels.com to become a member and secure exclusive rates, and the Resident teams will support you throughout your stay. Whitehall Sources, we're back for a new year. Thank you very much for being there. Uh, leave us a little review if you've got a moment, actually. It's always nice to read your reviews. Um, we've had quite a few five-star reviews. Somebody absolutely slammed us and it brought our average down, which was a little bit disconcerting. <laughs> but <laughs> Why did they slam us? I what don't did know. they say? Well, I don't know if they left any helpful comments. That's the problem. They just kind of... Somebody's given us like a, like a low-star review. Yeah, somebody, somebody put one star. I mean, oh, just yeah. laugh off. We don't need that in our lives, that negativity. <laughs> So if you want to leave a review, five stars only, um, then go to uh, your podcast app and just, um, yeah, just click the, I'll do it now, five stars, there we go. I don't know if mine registers because it's my blooming podcast, it's probably a bit biased. Uh, right, <laughs> lots lot still to discuss. Rishi Sunak's heading to Scotland, uh, we'll get to that in a mo. First, I want to bring you what is some breaking news at time of recording, so appreciate just a quick thought on this. Bloomberg reports that the UK and the EU are aiming for a final deal to end Brexit clash in fresh talks. Here we go, people. Uh, The bullet points on this. Tunnel, in inverted commas, tunnel talks aim to unlock Northern Ireland protocol dispute. The advance comes after an agreement on data sharing. So, I mean, in normal language, Bloomberg says, and I'll read from the piece here from Alberto Nardelli, Alex Wickham and Morvena Conium. The European Union and the UK are preparing to enter an intense phase of negotiations starting next week, aimed at overcoming the dispute over the post-Brexit trading relationship well ahead of the anniversary of Northern Ireland's peace agreement in April. Uh, They're citing people familiar with the matter. Uh, A negotiating tunnel, Kirsty, is what's being described. Have we been in the tunnel before? Uh, I don't think we've ever got as Whoa, far as the tunnel. What a in, in In sort of negotiating parlance, the tunnel is a real thing. So actually when you think you're close to a deal, uh, you go into the tunnel, which is, as it as, as just been said, is intensive negotiations on the, uh, on the line by line of it. This would be significant. I think since the start of the year, we've seen the EU making much more conciliatory noises about its ability to make concessions uh, about trade that comes over from... The UK into Northern Ireland and over that sort of invisible border, if you like, down the sea. Um, and actually, data is the is the reality of this. So the vast majority of goods that flow from UK to Northern Ireland come from kind of trusted traders, if you like, mm. and you can have kind of pre-approval checks. So, if there is a political will, there is a way to have a lot of these checks kind of either away from the border or sort of pre-approved in a trusted. Status. What is interesting about this, though, and what will be fascinating as ever with this, is the good old rump of the Conservative Party. (laughs) The issue about green routes and trade from one side to the other into Northern Ireland is one of the most important aspects of of the ongoing thorny issue about the Northern Ireland Protocol. The other is about who determines trade disputes. Now, at the moment, obviously, that is still the European Court of Human Rights. Now, if we get to a point where we can reach an agreement on the actual you know, mechanisms of how you get goods from one side to the other, uh, that both sides can agree on, this is a major breakthrough. Mm. Will it be enough to appease the rump within the Conservative Party that say that's still not good enough, up with this we will not put, whilst the ultimate arbiter of any trade dispute is the European uh, European Court? So we might be 
90% there, but squaring the old protocol circle, as it were, might still be one of those things that's forever caught up with with a certain rump of the Conservative Party. Let's mm. put it that way. That is excellent snap analysis. Frankie, let's come to you uh, as we enter the tunnel together. What a moment for us all to share. Gosh, get your passport stamped. We're into the tunnel. We mentioned kind of cigarette paper differences between Labour and the Conservatives on, on some elements of the, their kind of strike policies. Is it actually similar when it comes to Brexit at this point? It's a, it's a classic thing that's being thrown at Keir Starmer is, is well, what's the difference? Yeah, I, mean, I don't know what the difference is. Yeah. And also it's important to note that kind of this is Keir Starmer's big test after being Mr. Remainer. Yeah. I mean, you know, I have memories of Keir Starmer stomping around Lotto during the Brexit vote is because he wanted the Labour Party to back a second referendum. You know, he was the darling of FBPE and now is kind of totally <laughs> What does FBP? Himself. Are we allowed to say what FBPE means? I don't think we can say the first word, can we really? No, it's follow back pro-Europe. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever did you think it was, Callum? I always thought it was a rude word followed by Brexit. Maybe it's my, I certainly have rude thoughts about people who are FBP, <laughs> but it, it is follow back pro-Europe. It was that whole Twitter storm, wasn't it, there? People got really, like, Twitter famous for caring about the EU. You know, it was mad, absolutely <laughs> mad phase of life. But, yeah, no, I mean, Keir Starmer, he's a real thorn in our side around the Brexit votes, and he was doing all sorts of Machiavellian moves on particular things, just like this, about trade deals. So it's interesting to see what he will kind of demand mm. as... Labour Party leader, because I imagine it'll be the total reverse. But also, it's not a very astute point, but God, I'm so bored of Brexit. <laughs> it's 2023. You know, I haven't been an advisor for a very long time, and yet I'm still being dragged into conversations about Brexit. I don't know about you, Kirsty, but like, I just feel like it's a bit of a failure of politics worldwide that we are, you know, in January 2023 and we're still not sorted with Brexit? Well, um, there's, there's two things to say there. One, if ever there was a hollow uh, political phrase, it's we got Brexit done, because <laughs> yes. we still haven't, self-evidently, as these tunnel talks will testify to. Uh, I think the other point about this is actually, I think, one of those creeping narratives you're going to start to see, which you're starting to see seeded already, but will continue past the next election, is that one about what has Brexit ever done for us? Mm. So... There is no escaping it because now the centre-right can't blame Brussels for all the many ills that befall our nation. There's going to be, perfectly justifiably, a demand for sort of, OK, we've taken back control of our money, laws and borders. Everything costs an absolute fortune and nothing works. You know, what? what is the benefit, the real-world benefit to people of taking back our sovereignty. And I think that is going to be an increasingly tricksy thing for particularly the Conservatives to answer. And I don't know, forgive me if I have delighted uh, Whitehall Sources um, uh, listeners with this story before, but Keir Starmer was such a bad faith actor in the whole Brexit uh, negotiations that at one point Downing Street was having talks with the Labour Party about trying to reach a consensus to get this blessed deal over the line. Uh, Keir Starmer was part of the Labour's negotiating team and was just going through everything, striking that out and striking that out. And so we literally cut and pasted a piece of, of, of Labour text and put it into our document and represented it, if you like, to the Labour negotiating team. And Keir Starmer was like, well, we can't accept this. This is absolutely outrageous. And so, you know, striking a metaphorical red pen through it, at which point the then Chief of Staff, Gavin Barber, said, well, actually, these are, you know, this is, this is word for word Labour text kind of cut and pasted from your documentation. So that's how much Keir Starmer wanted to get a deal done at the time, um, no matter how much he tries to rebrand himself now. Mm. And there was a wonderful line yesterday in, in PMQs, actually, uh, hats off to the gag writer on this one about when they were talking about uh, min uh, minimum service levels in, in strike action and, and Rishi Sunak said these are the same sorts of minimum service levels that you'll see in Italy, in Spain, in France, whatever it is. And I, I thought the leader of the opposition was all in favour of, of you know, European alignment, which 
I thought was a <laughs> was a nice sideswipe. But they'll never let him forget. He'll try, but they'll never let him forget. <laughs> obviously, a big thing that the Conservatives are going to campaign on when it comes to Brexit and immigration is obviously the ECHR, which is the European Convention of Human Rights. I think it represents that kind of like liberal lovey approach to human rights that a lot of backbench, you know, Tory MPs in the ERG will want to campaign against in the next general election. Reading again in my research for my podcast, <laughs> for I am, you know, I am devoted and dutiful. Um, I was and we love it. Thank you. Uh, I was rereading the Rishi Sunak New Year's speech. Greater love have no woman for her podcast because it was quite a, <laughs> it was quite a listicle kind of. It's not, it's not the, the most inspiring uh, speech I've I've ever read. To be fair. But actually, I mean, it's a it's a cheesy old phrase. But you know, the, the pledges that he's made, the five pledges, he calls the people's priorities. I mean, you know, pass me a sick bag. But it's interesting to know that the people's priorities in there include small boats. Mm. I mean, it's economic, it's NHS, it's all the things you'd expect, and it's small boats. Now, this these people's priorities haven't been plucked out of the out of the ether in Downing Street. These have been the consequence, I suspect, of intensive polling and intensive focus, focus groups. So, so actually, this issue is very much front and centre, and I think it will be, I agree with Frank, it absolutely will be uh, one of the main kind of battlegrounds, if you like, of the next election. Whether the ECHR thing becomes an issue or not, I don't know at this stage, but there is no doubt that as far as what I presume to be polling in number 10 tells them that this is seen to be a big vote winner for mm. them. I do wonder as well then, with what we've just been discussing on Brexit, with uh, the kind of progress in strikes and the fact that talks are happening, there's, you know, at least there's a perception of something moving, and also Rishi Sunak going to Scotland tonight. First of all, is there a narrative here of Rishi Sunak getting a grip on things and, and actually getting on with the job and just cracking on with stuff, Frankie? He's an, he's a, he's an action man in this new year. Is he? Yeah, look at him doing things. Look at him, he's solving the strikes. He's off to solve, save the union. Brex we're in the right? tunnel, we're in the, we're in the, we're the Brexit tunnel. This we is all Rishi Sunak's doing, is it not? Yeah. I am interested to see how Rishi Sunak will approach the Scottish question, because mm. I think Boris Johnson, you know, in his own way, basically destroyed any kind of relationship with Nicola Sturgeon. And, you know, Liz Truss, I think, was quite rude about Nicola Sturgeon. And I think that really rubbed, you know, the Scots up the wrong way, as it were. Uh, so I wonder if Rishi Sunak is off there on a charm offensive um, to be less rude and maybe, you know, start conversations about the future of the union. I mean, to be honest, I'll give my personal political prediction. I think Scottish independence is inevitable in the future. And I use the word future kind of like as a very big thing. I don't know when it will happen. Will it happen in my lifetime? I don't know. But I can't really see what Rishi Sunak is going to be able to offer Nicola Sturgeon as a way to reduce that appetite for independence. I think the only thing that will change, you know, the future of independence is if the SNP aren't in power anymore. And I don't see that happening. And also, there's another thing for the Labour Party, which is that they are standing some candidates um, for the next general election against sitting SNP and politicians. And I think that has the potential to have more of an impact on the Scottish question of independence than Rishi Sunak going up there in his suit, probably in a private jet, to try and do a charm offensive with Nicola Sturgeon. It's quite a long journey, to be fair. We can, surely we can all support him flying. I, there's a, I, I, it's a couple of things to consider. One, I think Boris Johnson really neutralised the SNP by kind of making fun of them and having that back and forth with Ian Blackford at Prime Minister's Questions uh, each week. Kind of almost, the SNP perform best when they're fighting something. Um, and that doesn't need to be aggy, it doesn't need to be aggressive, but when they've got something to kind of clash with. And yeah. if Boris Johnson, um, when, he, when he sort of took the approach of kind of being quite jovial and, you know, uh, about it, that, that kind of took the sting out of it a bit because the SNP didn't really have much to attack. Then you had Liz Truss, who, of course, during the, um, it was during the campaign, wasn't it? I think the best thing to do with Nicola Sturgeon is ignore her. I'm sorry, she's an attention seeker. Um, is what she said, uh, Liz Truss. And here we have Rishi Sunak, Kirsty, who talked to Nicola Sturgeon as soon as he took office uh, as Prime Minister, um, saw her in that first month and is now off on a, off on a trip to Scotland. Yeah, viva the grown-ups, right? So, um, 
So a couple of things to say there. One, whilst Boris Johnson's Westminster tactics for SNP might have played well, Boris Johnson himself was about as popular yes. in Scotland as toxic waste. So uh, <laughs> every time he went there or mentioned Scotland, I suspect the uh, SNP's poll ratings went up by about five points. Uh, Liz Truss was unconscionably rude about the uh, First Minister and borderline rude about the uh, French president, Macron, mm. as well, who she was asked, friend or foe, and she said, well, the jury's out. Well, it's interesting to see that not only is Rishi Sunak making it uh, an early point to go and visit the first minister, he's also got a, a visit into France next month as well. So this is a new approach. It's a more grown-up, uh, sensible, again, conciliatory approach. Uh, I have to say, though, there is a massive row brewing between uh, Westminster uh, and Scotland. You will recall, I think it was the back end of last year, Scotland passed the, uh, forgive me if I get the name technically wrong, but the Gender Recognition Reform Bill, which makes it easier for people to change their gender. Now, there is a feeling within some within the Conservative Party in Westminster that this rides a coach and horses through uh, UK equalities legislation and that that in itself is a reserved matter. So some matters are reserved and held as a UK-wide legal function and some are devolved. So there is a feeling that this might potentially ride a coach and horses through reserved matters and they want uh, the government to action what is called Section 35 of the Scotland Act, never been actioned before, to frankly torpedo this mm. piece of legislation. So on the one hand, he's going up there to, to make nice with Nicola Sturgeon, but on the other hand, there's this huge kind of constitutional brouhaha going on in the background. Now, I think the UK government's got until the middle of next week to say uh, what it intends to do on this. My guess is there is a get-out clause for them, by the way, which is they can kick all this to the Supreme Court and go, you sort this out. This is a very unpleasant mess and we don't need it on top of all the other horrendous things like buckling our in-tray. So uh, if I was going to make a, a snap guess, that's what I think they'd do. But, yeah, so on the one hand, it's conciliatory, it's respectful, uh, it's a sensible thing for the Prime Minister to do, but on the other hand, there's this massive constitutional row coming down the pipe for them as well. But this is a thing that's going to kind of dominate politics you know, going forward between, you know, Westminster and Scotland, which is that if Scotland starts kind of passing laws or writing legislation that the UK government feels is kind of, and I say UK government meaning Rishi Sunak, um, feels is in contrast to their kind of policy platform, not just based on, you know, what's already existing, but what they would like to see politically, it does throw up a kind of interesting constitutional question, which is, what can Scotland actually do? And I would say that, you know, if I lived in Scotland and it didn't matter about how I felt about this bill, but I heard that, you know, Scottish Parliament, through a democratic mandate, passed some law and legislation, and then in whatever way they managed to do it, the English government got rid of that law, I would feel like it would be an affront on my... Ah. But it is not the English government, is it? It is the UK government. We know, still have a United Kingdom and there are reserved laws which are held by Westminster. I, I would know. still I would still kick it out to the Supreme Court or make it somebody else's problem. Though. Yeah, yeah no, right. I think you're absolutely right, but I would question whether that might be a bit of a shot in the foot for them in terms of trying to keep, you know, Scottish people on the side of wanting to be in the union, no? Mm. I, it's also an interesting issue for uh, in which this argument arises about you know potentially blocking it potentially going to the supreme court because polling suggests actually the law is quite unpopular in scotland when it, the gender reform yeah. bill and so actually in terms of if the snp are picking a fight indeed if the conservatives are picking a fight it's a fascinating issue to do it on because Callum, uh, can we vox pop you as yes. our actual resident <laughs> real life scotsman you here can... what what's your view about whether you know, using the sort of Scotland Act and and taking Section Thirty Five and and putting our foot down, if you like, mm. on on Scottish laws would. So, regardless of the row about you know or, or the popularity or otherwise of the piece of legislation itself, whether that piece of constitutional, you know, heavy footing, if you like, would 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 play against the the government. Yeah, I think what you have and have had for a number of years since the SNP obviously have been in government is a really interesting. Um, 
issue that Frankie highlighted where the two governments at Holyrood and at Westminster are of different parties. And when devolution happened, uh, there was a Labour government in Scotland, there was a Labour government in Westminster, and so one tends to think that it was potentially a bit more politically straightforward to kind of navigate these sorts of things. I think there's possibly an argument that uh, dev devolution as a, as a concept and what it gives to Scotland, and indeed the other devolved administrations, needs to be considered, needs to be perhaps re-evaluated. Is it fit for purpose? Does it do enough? Is it achieving what it wants to achieve? Again, it's a political thing because the SNP love the idea of devolution, obviously, and beyond. But in terms of how they then govern, the devolution tends to stop at Holyrood. They tend to be quite anti-local council in a lot of things that they then do. Indeed, there was suggestions in the Times a few weeks ago that John Swinney wanted education to be a kind of centralised thing. The police force has been centralised as Police Scotland, the fire brigade has as well. So there's those considerations there as well. My political prediction for 2023, which as we all know is a fool's game, blah blah blah, is that Nicola Sturgeon will not be the First Minister of Scotland by the end of this year. <gasps> oh, that sharp intake of breath all around. <laughs> What's That's fun about this, this prediction is if I'm right, I look like some sort of sage, and if I'm wrong, who cares, because it was a bit of a wild one. But if you're wrong, we absolutely will remind you at the end of the year, <laughs> yeah. by the way. I know who gave us... A one-star rating. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that, but I just think my perception is that she's just at the end of the road. She's just she's done what she can do. She's kind of she's just a bit done. That that's you, it. it's not a kind of you know it's not a slight on her. It's nothing. She's just she's just maxed out. She's devil maxed out basically. Do you think that that will be like a sort of like resigning in grace or a party chopping of the head? I think there's a, I, no, I think it will be a, I don't think the party's capable enough actually to, to chop their own head off as it were <laughs> at this point. <laughs> basically since the Sam and Sturgeon era, as we all know, they had such a grip on the party. He then left, but then it's Nicola Sturgeon. She's got some good people around her in terms of capable people, but it's, there's nowhere near the same party discipline and uh, sticking to the message and it's issues like the the trans issue actually that, that actually can divide the SNP as well and so it becomes really fragmented and I actually just I think she will just stand down and say I've done my bit I've done my best I'm clocking off you know it's just been a it's been a long innings basically isn't there a bit of a storm brewing as well in kind of the SNP Westminster bunch I saw recently that Chris Law and I know of him because he's on the international development select committee and until recently was a shadow and i use the inverted commas because obviously people question the use of shadow for smp ministers mm. in westminster um just resigned out of the blue was doing a really good job and resigned just after ian blackford resigned and i saw on twitter had a lot of smp supporters saying we all know something's going on here why don't you tell the truth in your resignation letter and you know are we so kind of internally focused in the Westminster bubble that we're actually missing something really important happening mm. with those SNP MPs in Westminster. I mean, potentially. Uh, SNP MPs at Westminster are, of course, the living definition of turkeys voting for Christmas um, <laughs> because they want to do them themselves out of a job as soon as humanly possible, um, which is fine, you know, whatever, valid calls and all that. I think the SNP at Westminster is always a, ob obviously a slight oxymoron. I think it's really interesting that they're there. I think Ian Blackford, again, was probably quite one of their more capable communicators. PMQs was always a bit of a bun fight. He knew how to hit the SNP sweet spot, um, I suppose. When you saw the um, the coup, or the attempted coup, to get rid of him as Westminster leader, which I suppose eventually was successful, actually, um, however prolonged it was, is perhaps just unsettled. But I think that speaks to actually the feeling in the whole party, the SNP. They are just unsettled because their one lifelong dream and ambition remains actually quite far out of reach. Interesting. So and, there you are. And here is the tale of all governments, right, mm. which is why all governments end in failure, because ultimately, if you're in power for too long, this sense of entropy, whether you're, you know, Conservatives, SNP in Scotland, I mean, I, I don't know what sort of seismic event would ever happen to knock Labour out of power in Wales, but, but this just this sense of exhaustion creeps in there's no new ideas the ability to refresh in office is really really difficult mm -hmm. to do which is why i suspect you know labor are still 
sort of chunking ahead in the polls UK-wide. Not because Keir Starmer is a great visionary or a charismatic performer. I think, you know, if Rishi Sunak's giving off kind of head boy vibes, then Keir Starmer's giving off kind of like, you know, slightly smug head teacher vibes to me. <laughs> but, you know, so there's nothing... You know, it's just put, the support isn't sort of overwhelming. There's not some sort of seismic new Labour 97 Tony Blair, mm. things can only exactly. get better kind of vibe. It's just... We're done. We're done with this lot. We're exhausted. Let's just give this lot over here a go just cause. It's that slightly like, ugh, you know, shoulder shrug kind of attitude to politics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that gives advisors a hard sell as well, because I'll give you an example of this. You know, when I was an advisor um, to Jeremy, regardless of how you thought about him, he had star power. I mean, it's kind of bizarre on based on his personality that he did. But, you know... When I used to travel with him around the UK, it was like being with a rock star. I can't explain it any other way. You know, we would be mobbed by people. And often, you know, that kind of like almost like rock star quality of politicians is really helpful because it means that people look the other way when they make mistakes. And it takes a long time for people to actually look beyond the person and start analysing the policies. And you're completely right, Kirsty. You know, Keir Starmer is no Tony Blair. So he might have the policies, which, you know, I'm not a fan of, of Tony Blair, but he doesn't have the pizzazz to use, you know, want of a better phrase. And that's hard for advisors, particularly when it comes to communications, because when we get those debates happening uh, in the lead up to the general election, where really it is about your personality, it's you selling your policies, it's looking like a leader, feeling like a leader. I do worry that if Keir Starmer is put up against Rishi Sunak and their policy platform is pretty much the same, you know, are you going to be able to tell a difference? And it will be that exhaustion with, you know, 12 years of Tory rule that might get them over the line. And here is another interesting thing. I've had three people in the last two or three weeks say to me, and these are not people with a skin in the game, by the way, mm. three people say to me in the last two or three weeks, they don't care what the polls say, they're not convinced that this is a slam dunk for Labour in 24 at all. Not at all. Really? There we are. Well, we will continue to build up to the next general election, basically. I mean, that's what that's what it feels like at a certain points since we came back after the new year. Um, Frankie and Kirsty, thank you very much. The political leaders might not be fresh, but we certainly are. We are here, re-energised, ready to go for 2023. Um, thank you for being with us on Whitehall Sources this week. Do sign up to the mailing list, please. That would be wonderful. Whitehallsources.com is the website and you can email us anytime hello at whitehallsources.com and if you've got questions for Kirsty and Frankie send those in we'll put them to them absolutely no problem if you'd like to comment on what you're hearing or give us ideas for what you want to hear Kirsty and Frankie discuss then we can make that happen as well the best way to get in touch anytime is to email hello at whitehallsources.com we will drop into your feed every Thursday for 2023 starting today uh, thank you very much for being there we will speak to you next week Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.